Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that has caught our eye this week. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and with me is Editor Mel and Deputy News Editor Justin. Ahoy! This week, we're looking at possibly the biggest new vehicle arrival this year, and we'll discuss three occupants of the Cars Guide garage this week. Plus, we'll catch up with that crazy rocketeer with his eyes on the stars in Muskwatch. So stay with us. But first of all, we've had some feedback and all of it's been good, except maybe our initial commenter, FBG Slug. We were talking about uh, Mitsubishi uh, last week and the, the Mitsubishis we'd like to see. One of them we called out was the Absolute, which was a bit of a concept ute uh, based on the Triton. And FB said, we'd love to see a mostly parts bin Triton. Please don't go the clickbait route. You're better than that. And um, I, we weren't trying to do anything clickbaity. We were just um, looking at a vehicle that was out there and possibly something like that would be in Mitsubishi's future. But David Burt, who in a subsequent post said, real name, Victorian, uh, says Mitsubishi, and that doesn't mean he's alive since Queen Victoria was kicking around. For people overseas, he lives in a southern Australian state of Victoria, says Mitsubishi is better than that. Triton's good value, but it needs a bit more oomph, extra tech, and the rear overhang reduced to improve towing comfort. So um, that's some of the stuff he's looking for in the Triton. Rico says, what's going to happen to the Nissan Navara? Will it be a Triton clone a la BT50 Ranger? And that was where we were talking about different silos of activity within the Renault Mitsubishi Nissan Alliance. Um, and I think there's every chance that that would be happening. If I was uh, administrating that, that business, I'd be looking for those kinds of efficiencies. Um, what do you guys reckon? Can I say, if they pull it off to the same extent as what we've seen with Ranger and BT50, that's a good thing. They've yeah. taken, you know, they've kind of put a lot of investment into the platform that's now lasted nearly 10 years uh, and still been right at the top of, uh, you know, the Ranger generally wins all our comparison tests. Um, but they both uh, have unique sheet metal externally, enough to, you know, substantiate different, you know, we don't mistaken them for one another. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, will be the key. If, if they've got common sheet metal, yes. um, doors you could probably get away with, a lot of the tub, but I think you need, you know, unique taillights, unique bonnet shape, unique, head, yeah. unique headlight shape and, and front fascia. Definitely. Um, I, the thing I'd, I'd chip in there, when you look at the Mercedes-Benz X-Class and then Navara, I think in glorious hindsight, it's clear Merck didn't do enough to differentiate mm. that car, particularly <clears> from the... I mean, you, you can often, if you're looking quickly, mistake an X, uh, X-Class for a, a Triton. You know, it's that, uh, it's that close for mine anyway. Navara. What? You said it's a Triton. Oh, Navara, big your part. <laughs> I didn't know what you were doing. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, but man. I think I think the difference there is though that Mercedes is you know perceived as this brand in Australia, whereas Nissan is perceived as mainstream. Uh, whereas we're talking Mitsubishi and Nissan here, and they're they're both you know solid mainstream players. Yes. So I think you know like Mazda and Ford, they could uh, afford to get away with it. Uh, yeah. Much well, eighty-eight MTB eighty-eight, um, who's obviously in the USA, he drives a twenty seventeen Triton. He's interested to see what Nissan-Mitsubishi collaboration will mean and says that Nissan's teased the Frontier, um, showing it'll be larger than the Navara. And I suppose that's another model that goes into this whole mix. 
that may have an outcome for Mitsubishi. It may, you know, go the other way around. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mitsubishi, as I understand it right now, doesn't have one of those kind of American pickups like a Tundra or an F-150 or what have you. So there's mm. definitely uh, opportunity to, you know, get into potentially a Frontier type of car. Also the Titan as well being the full-size Nissan pickup. Mm. Um, yep. Potentially Mitsubishi gets in on that action too. And you know they could get into the uh, into the market with uh, something like those two. So Wouldn't that's that definitely on the table. Yeah, yeah. The other thing to consider with the Frontier is that haven't they skipped the NP three hundred generation that we see now? And they, they, they. Yeah. I'm not sure if they still are, but they were still selling the D forty generation, what we that's saw right. as Navara as the Frontier for a long after. So, yeah. you know, if they can't justify bringing the NP three hundred in, maybe a Mitsubishi shared vehicle is what they need to to renew that nameplate. Yeah, you're right. They definitely did skip that generation. So, yeah, the Navarro Frontier you see over there is uh, is old versus what we've had in Australia. But, mm. um, yeah, obviously they're moving to this new generation model now that's kind of separated from Navarro. Maybe it will be part of what is to come. Time mm. will tell. But, uh, yeah, it's yep. interesting. And also with the return of Ranger to America, you know, like Nissan will need something fresh in that space to compete. Yes, absolutely. Now, sticking with Mitsubishi, Wax Triple Three, who of course is our New Zealand correspondent, said we were talking about the Expander, which is a three-row uh, people mover style vehicle with with a certain overtone of SUV about it. And he said, "Isn't the Expander a 1.5 litre with CVT hard sell in our markets, meaning Australia and New Zealand? I suppose it might be, but you know, smaller engines with greater efficiency and outputs seem to be you know a growing kind of thing, and there's not." too much resistance, but what he's calling for is he wants a cyborg um, update, which was the uh, Mirage Colt uh, kind of thing. He wants a 1.5 turbo from the Eclipse and a manual. He said it would knock off Hyundai and, and the GR Yaris or Corolla. So he's, he's doing the product planning and he's... <laughs> it's a big call to knock off the GR Yaris. Yeah, that's a big call. Cool. Look, um, Hammer Rocks, our old mate Hammer says... Shame Mitsubishi's leading Pajero slide, legendary reputation, you know, it's tough and capable. He thinks back to Paris Dakar success, all of this wonderful aura around the product. He's owned two. He had an NJ GLS and an NL Exceed. Ten years on, he still regrets trading the NL. He's looking for a low-key NL for two or three years. Long live the Pajero. So he's uh, an absolute fan and looking to renew his relationship with that one. Um, I yeah. I was just going to say, I can't believe that the US market isn't driving, you know, a newer Pajero. Like, yes. that, that size and shape of car and, and like, the mm. current Pajero that we've seen since pretty much the mid-90s, basically, on that platform, with its independent front suspension, front and rear, and I think it's, it's monocoque, but, like, that was so far ahead of its time, and that level of civilised uh, SUV of that size is yes. kind of important in America. So, I suppose the it's a bit of admission of failure. The wild card might be, Mal, you know, in the in the formation of this alliance and Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi's joining into it, you never know how much uh, cash is in the till. You know, mm. whether th these things that make perfect sense from the outside, how, you have to prioritise, I suppose, from the inside, um, mm. and that could be a factor. Mm, mm. And Australia is one of very few markets to still get that Pajero, so... And yeah. you know, as as we've learnt from Holden, we are but a mere minnow in the in the grand scheme of things. Well, look, it's interesting you say that now because David Burke came in for another comment, and he says, you know, he asks if Australia is the only market with demand for a Prado Pajero sized four wheel drive. You know, 
couldn't you update the dash and drivetrain? Um, and then the Prado, uh, the Pajero could stack up well as a Prado competitor if it just had a little love. Um, mm. Ten years ago, the Pajero was the go-to um, in Victoria, he says, the Garden State. You'll know what that's mm. all about, Justin. Um, <laughs> he said, for, for grey uh, Garden State grey nomads heading north, would like a Prado competitor with better daily driver credentials. So he'd definitely be in the market for an upgraded Pajero. Mm. I think a lesson there is that the US doesn't get the Prado as we know it. They only get it as a Lexus GX. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. if you can't make it work in the US, I mean, mind yeah. you, they can't make the 200 series Land Cruiser work in the US either. It's it's going mm. Lexus only as well. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, it's not big enough. It's just not big enough in America mm. physically. Anyway, we also touched on, moving on, CVTs and uh, Subaru's penchant for CVTs. And Neza, our old mate, says, what do you think of CVTs with simulated shift? Will they improve? You know, Tess drove the Seltos and was generally, his words, not mine, not too annoyed by its CVT with fake shifts. And I was only in a podcast either last week or the week prior. So I've been driving that Lexus UX 200 with a CVT and in manual mode, I really enjoyed it. It actually changed my opinion of that car quite a bit because all you're doing is probably, you know, stopping the rubber bands at a particular point and limiting what would be a gear ratio and then stepping it differently as you go through the different cones. And it worked really well, and I liked it um, quite a lot. Justin, do you have any opinion on that? Well, I actually just spent some time in a uh, Corolla sedan that had the two-litre petrol and a CVT in it as well, and much like the UX has those simulated uh, steps, 10 of them, in fact. So I was playing around a couple of days ago with the paddle shifters, which you would never imagine doing in CVT, but anyway, I was. And, yeah, you can go up and down the rev range quite freely and really pick your spot. So when you are playing with the paddles, it it does kind of feel like a a regular automatic with with paddle shifters, even though it's obviously not. Mm. And I think I think Toyota Lexus's version of the CVT is definitely one of the better ones in the market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, it is, and the Corolla and many other Toyota products now, um, and I think maybe the UX too. I'm not quite sure. Have a mechanical first gear, so they've got a, a proper first so ratio. Yeah. So off off the line, it does feel quite natural. Um, yeah. But then obviously, once you uh, move on from first gear, it then kicks into CVT mode and. Um, things are a little different in terms of obviously how it performs, but it's definitely not the worst CVT out there. It's, it's one of the better ones, but still wouldn't yeah. be my choice if I was yeah. buying a car. All right. I think, it's, I think it's very interesting, actually, the, the whole CVT adding steps situation. And, you know, it's, they've cleverly created a mode for us to enjoy, um, yeah. but it also contrasts and contradicts basically the fundamental benefit of a CVT in that yeah. it's it's intended to be fluid. So Great point. Great it's a bit point. like um, it's a bit like how you know a lot of cars with uh, active adaptive dampers. You know, if you put them in full sport, they just make you feel like you're being sporty without actually being faster. Yes, sure. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's just a flick of a switch away. You can have full efficiency if you want to. You can have you know yeah. the perception of of, of yeah. ratios as well. I suppose um, there are a couple of things there. One is you're probably not going to be driving it in manual mode the majority of the time. Yeah. And the second thing is the cynic in me says often a CVT is included because it gets you to a particular fuel efficiency uh, level. Um, Definitely in the case of people, Subaru. How people use the car in reality is a whole different story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's right. Now, and 
Yeah, sorry, Mel, go ahead. At the end of the day, these things are often just handy for the dealer to, you know, to reassure you in the showroom that, oh, no, 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 if you don't like that, you can do this. Yeah, and yeah, then, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if people never use them, as long as you yes. buy it knowing you've got the choice. It's all that's features and benefits yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. We, yeah. we were talking about Subaru more generally, and uh, Lofty Visions, I love his uh, YouTube name, Lofty Visions said he thought about lift, uh, lifting a Lavorg to replace his SG Forester XT, but the CVT kills it for him. Subaru has become the byword for disappointment, he says. And um, great show as always. Thank you. So he's not disappointed in us, um, <laughs> just in the Subaru. And then David Bird and Lofty had a bit of a to and fro about whether it's actually appeasing the American market, whether it's something that's um, so popular there that um, it's, it's skewed the way Subaru is setting up its cars. I think that that boxer is fundamentally not very efficient. So they are yeah. they need right. that CVT to to bring it back to acceptable levels. Yeah. Um, and you know, for Subaru to go and develop or uh, adapt someone's dual clutch to suit that engine, pretty expensive for a relatively small brand. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Now, Anthony Pagano, Anthony Pagano, wishes Subaru had the Ascent as a competitor for Toyota Kluger Mazda CX-8. And others, and that's so a does seven, Subaru. It's a, it's a seven-seater. It's it's um, two point four boxer. I presume it's a turbo. I haven't um, looked at yeah, it. Yes, um, with the CVT and all-wheel drive. And um, for those on YouTube, we'll have a picture of the vehicle. It's pretty handsome. Um, it's a it's a nicely composed-looking car. So um, yes, you would have to think. I agree, Mal, that Subaru Australia would love to have that. I think it's a commitment to left-hand drive only from the right. beginning. Unfortunately. Yeah. But I've seen them in the flesh. They look like a, a, a larger Forester. And yes. if they made them in right-hand drive, they would, we would buy lots, for sure. Absolutely. Now, um, under the heading of general, general commentary, Pranav Shroti says, great job, guys. Thank you very much, Pranav. Um, the term platform is confusing. Is it a combination of chassis, suspension components, engine electricals? How come VW uses Polo platform for T-Cross but it's longer, wider, suspensions are different, that kind of thing. And it put me in mind that back in the late 70s, early 80s, when Lee Iacocca came in like a knight in shining armour to salvage Chrysler in the US, part of his genius was platform sharing. So he was able to make everything from sedans, wagons, minivans on what was, I think, physically the same platform, i.e. the sheet metal, all that stuff was pretty much the same under each of these cars. More commonly now, when you're talking about a platform, it's, it's almost like it's an idea. It's a set of components that you can mm. reconstruct into different configurations. And that's why it's sometimes called a matrix in mm. that you're, you're taking different parts and rearranging it. For example, Toyota's TNGA, which is their new global architecture, Toyota new global architecture, that's not the same thing under each car. It's just the same idea applied to different models, yeah? That's a lot like uh, Mazda with Skyactiv, uh, yeah. you know, in that the MX-5, which is rear-wheel drive, is technically on the same platform as a CX-9, yes. which yes. is vastly different in terms of size, uh, drivetrain layout, componentry, you name it. Um, but is. Justin and I were actually discussing this at length this we week. Were. And, okay. We were. And I think, I think it really comes down to, like... There's translation issues, but I think each brand is, you know, has the potential to have its own definition of platform. You know, some yeah, have absolutely. platform to define a particular size segment. So, you know, if you have a B segment hatch, yeah. um, 
some will have some will use it to re to uh, reflect on a, a particular component set of you know like interchangeable components. Yes. Uh, whereas TNGA or Mazda Sky Active refers to more of a philosophy. Yeah. Um, well, sometimes I mean, Renault, for example, is big on saying, um, say it's a Megane um, and it's an RS. Well, this one has the cup chassis and this one doesn't have the yeah. cup chassis. Really, that's a suspension tune. Um, it's it's no fundamental chassis. change to yeah. anything other than the tune of the suspension. So you're right, it mm -hmm. is a pretty malleable word. Mm. I think the thing to keep in mind here is, uh, is modular because all of these platforms, if, if not absolutely all of them, are, are modular in some way. So they're not created for a single application, generally speaking. You know, the Volkswagen platform we were talking about before, MQB, MLB, the M and both of those stands for modular. So, you know, they have those different applications. As for dimensions, uh, you know, being different, obviously bodywork can be different versus an SUV or a, uh, a light car like the Polo and T-Cross comparison, for example. So there's lots yeah. of uh, different bits involved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought this was an interesting one. Michael McLeith, who also is in the US, he agrees with Tung, who said last week that Hyundai um, is his uh, an admired brand. We are asking for our prejudices. You know, we're, we're meant to be so very even-handed, but who stands out for us, you know, all jokes aside. And Tung nominated Hyundai because it just seemed to do such a great job in so many areas. And Michael said he agrees in their almost supernatural in its ability to build vehicles that, that push the categories. He's a big Honda fan. He bought his first Accord in 1980. Um, so his significant other just bought a new Kona, and he's impressed with its value. It's loaded and significantly cheaper than other models from Japan, Honda included. So while they're at the dealer, he looked at the Palisade, says that's remarkable, thinks it's terrific. The Veloster R, which I think is a turbo R-spec, looks fast and fun. The Venue says it's good, and he got in and played with the manual shift, so he thinks the manual uh, shift is pretty good, and he can't wait for the truck, bracket, you. So um, he's been almost converted, I think, from a Honda devotee into admiring Hyundai in a pretty big way. Justin, um, I, I got lost there if um, agree with Tung. That's a fascinating uh, subject. <laughs> <laughs> is, but uh, as, aside from that, uh, I think he makes some excellent points. You know, Hyundai certainly... Uh, hit its straps in recent times. Um, you know, James, you'll remember when Hyundai was introduced to Australia and it was very Ooh, much yeah. a toe in the water. And uh... Yep. I was there when Alan Bond, famous for being a crook, um, a yachtsman and a sign writer, um, had the first Hyundai um, agreement franchise in Western Australia and then brought it to the rest of the country. And those cars were, yeah, pretty rudimentary. They, they mm. weren't exactly uh, spectacular. I actually found one of those around the corner from me a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you Original found it. You found it. Found yes, it. you found it. Of course you found well, it. When did, when did you guys last see uh, an X1 XL? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's mm. not many left. Most of them have gone back to nature, one flake of iron oxide at a time. <laughs> and the bits... The bits that remain are probably the Mitsubishi bits that were in that car, which there was a few. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, mm. we're, we're near the end of the comments here. We had various, lots of loved it and wows from uh, Tyler and David Alexander and Christopher Farley. I wonder if Christopher lives in a van down by the river. Anyone who uh, has watched SNL for a period of years might get that one. <laughs> but the person who, um, who's just YouTube name I absolutely love, Used to earn money, used to earn make money online platform, um, who we spoke with last time. 
says let's collab. So he wants to he wants to collaborate, mate. Comments at carsguide.com.au. Just let us know what you've got in mind. I'm up for an album. So. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not, not just the, uh, karaoke singer, though. So that's not just you do better than most of us. <laughs> and if not an album, just an individual track will be fine. Um, right. so, I'm open to genre suggestions as well. Use to earn, make money online platform should send us a demo, and then we can put our we can overlay our stuff on it. Yeah. Off, yeah. Fantastic. Now. <laughs> Paul Victor, oh no, TGV, the very fast train, says any news about future 2021-22 Ranger Everest, so hold that thought. And Paul Victor says rumour has it uh, Toyota is increasing power in new Hilux Fortuna. Is it a software upgrade because he wants to apply it to older engines like his 1GD, <laughs> for example? So that just segues beautifully into our main topic of discussion because in between Paul putting that question to us on YouTube, and now we've actually had the official launch of the new Hilux, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in terms of the powertrain and suspension, the way it looks, all of that. Justin, over to you to give us a bit of a thumbnail on, on the highlights. Yeah, obviously big news this week, uh, the new Hilux coming through. Of course, it's Australia's best-selling car, so of course it's big news. Um, but uh, as you were saying, JC, big engine news uh, with the Hilux. The 2.8 litre turbo diesel now has 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres of torque, but only if you get it as an automatic. The manual is still 420 for torque, uh, just like it was before, and the power is up to 150 in the manual. Uh, so, yeah, they've done some pretty extensive changes to the engine. So, I don't know for sure, but I suspect it's more than just a, a software update. Um, yeah. There's some different bits that have been done there. Obviously, uh, the Hilux recently had some issues with its uh, diesel particulate filter as well. So the understanding is Toyota's done some work to redesign that element of the engine too. Um, so yeah, there's been quite a bit done on the engine yep. front. And I guess the key takeaway there is it now stacks up a lot better against the uh, Ranger, uh, which has had its number for quite some time now in the engine outputs department, but uh, they're pretty pretty even now, so it's come a long way. Well, when you think about the image of the Ranger Raptor um, in this market, it's 157 kilowatts and 500 newton metres. All of a sudden, Hilux is just seven kilowatts off that and matching it for torque. Yeah, absolutely, and doing it with one less turbo. Granted, 800 more cc, but one less turbo. So, yeah, it's it's something Toyota's been behind, you know, yeah. for, for a while now, but they're more or less even pegging. Uh, Maybe it's just a monstrous turbo. It, they might <laughs> poke through the bonnet somehow. Well, well here's hoping. <laughs> so we don't actually, they haven't, I've actually read the release, but they haven't actually specified mechanical changes that have brought us to these numbers. No, so basically, uh, depending on the market, there's there's quite a bit of information out there. Um, so looking around, there's yeah, various tidbits. Um, but yeah, in terms of full breakdown of mechanical changes, that's not something that's been shared yet. I'm sure we'll hear about it closer to the uh, Hilux's launch in August, so only a couple months away. Yeah. Um, yep. But for now, we've got a kind of surface-level details, but uh, still lots of interesting bits. And okay. I suppose we'll get more detail as well, but there are some basics in terms of suspension upgrades, and that might vary by by model, but it's around bushings in the leaf spring design at the rear and other bits and pieces. Yeah, I think the way they termed it was uh, improved suspension geometry. Um, geometry. So, 
Yeah, there's definitely been some changes. Um, obviously, the the aim of the game is to uh, improve road, road holding. Sorry, um, because the current Triton, as we all know, unladen is is a little bit bouncy uh, with its rear end. So I like. Uh, sorry, I, I said Triton. What are we doing? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it's the Triton. It's my turn next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll just wait for that. But yeah, the the highlights is quite right. the bouncy rear end. But um, so I assume the idea behind that is to obviously settle that down over bumps. Um, yeah. But at the same time, they still obviously want to um, have it great with payload and what have you. So and towing as well. So um, I'm very interested to see how it drives. Does it um, pick up a little bit more capacity in terms of towing as well? I think. Yes, three, that's right. Three and a half tons for the four by fours now. Finally, yeah, that's right. So the 4x4 Automatics 2.8-litre turbo diesel now do 3.5 tonne, matching the kind of segment benchmark. Yeah. Um, so Toyota's been at 3.2 for a while now, but finally 3.5. So moving up there, but the manuals are still not at that level, though. So, um, yeah, if you want better towing, you need to go for an automatic with a 2.8 okay. 4x4. Now, I... Um, I... I find it very interesting that they describe the suspension changes being about geometry and, you know, like geometry tends to improve handling um, more than anything. But it, that's not our greatest criticism with that car. Our greatest criticism is about refinement. But yeah. it also makes me wonder whether our criticisms about refinement are largely a result of Australia scoring the tougher chassis and suspension tune. Like when they developed Hilux, they developed, you know, the... The, the civilised suspension package and the, the heavy-duty one, and we score the heavy-duty one, and heavy-duty goes to South Africa, us, and no doubt a few other developing markets. But I think Europe gets the, the more civilised chassis, and I wonder if that's the answer. Um, well, apparently some of it's in uh, the, the shocks that have been put in there, so it's a different mm. tune on the shock absorbers. That might vary by model, but that's mm. one obvious lever that you can pull to um, you know refine the ride comfort. Mm. But I wonder whether... You know whether there's an opportunity to make the uh, the less heavy duty chassis an option for you know for people who buy SR5s and drive them for family yeah, cars, yeah, you know, and still retain a lot of the payload and a lot of the capability, just sacrificing some of the outright ruggedness. Yeah, um, yeah. Ford off as a similar option with the Ranger in Australia on those exactly. lower level workhorse variants. You can get a heavy duty suspension now as well as an option. And Volkswagen had it on the Amarok too. I'm not sure if they still do, but yeah. they certainly did at launch. Mm -hmm. um, I think you, when you, you look at the exterior, it's been made to look a bit tougher. You know, it it's looks like a bigger US-style truck. But inside, things like Apple CarPlay and Android Auto uh, are included. I think the media screen is bigger. You know, um, yeah. creature comforts, um, not just in the way the car rides, but the way you can use it um, seems to be improving as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely on the styling front, the Tacoma and the Tundra have influenced what the Hilux looks like now um, in terms of that front end design. So like you said, JC, it definitely looks a lot tougher, but a lot more modern too. You've got LED headlights now as well. So, wow. you know, it just, it just looks a lot sharper up front, but the rest of the car is pretty much the same as before, apart from the taillight design, which is different. So it really is that front end. It'll be interesting to see if the if we get LEDs across the range though, because I know previously the SR5 yeah. already had them. Um, yeah. and they're they're not cheap to replace if you hit a kangaroo. Uh, just I can't see a, uh, I can't see a four by two uh, um, getting yeah. uh, Maybe <laughs> no, economies of scale. You never know. 
But look, it's one of those things. Maybe you say they're expensive to replace. It could be a perceived value thing. They might be actually quite cheap to manufacture. You never know. And I know that the parts price was pretty easy. You could get away with a healthy margin, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Who it knows? could just be, yeah. Um, going back to the interior just for a moment, um, like you said, JC, you get Apple CarPlay now, you get Android Auto. There were two things missing before that really helped the technology um, front. The touchscreen now is eight inches instead of seven. But other than that, they really haven't done anything inside. Right. So while you get a significant facelift out front, Internally, it pretty much is the Hilux we've come to know inside, apart from the, the media side of it. So mm. that's something to keep in mind too. And can I just yeah. say, anyone who's thinking that, you know, we're carrying on about Android Auto and Apple CarPlay too much, if you haven't lived with it, you won't understand. But, you know, for those of us who live with it day to day, to hop in a car without it is just like chopping off a leg. True. And it's, it's a safety thing. It's a convenience wow. thing. And the other thing too is the Toyota multimedia system isn't exactly fantastic. So exactly. even if it is running the latest version of Toyota's multimedia system, it's still not going to be great. So to now have the option to plug your phone in and use that operating system is yeah. going to be a huge plus. Big step. James, you were going to tell us about your experience with amputation? No, no, your experience, Mel. You're saying it's, it's, a, bit like, it's a bit like chopping off a leg. I was wondering, I don't, I don't often do that. I mean, in fact... Never. I just wonder what your experience is. Theoretically. <laughs> Thank you. Because what, what we're also expecting in, Justin, I want to say 2021, 22, is a new Ranger. So yeah. the whole um, arms race continues in this really hot segment in Australia anyway. Um, and it'll be coming on with different engines, different transmissions, the whole works. Yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's an interesting time because like I said before, Hilux in many ways, despite being the best-selling car in Australia with Ranger number two, has been behind Ranger in terms of overall package and, and what you'd actually want to own. But um, yeah. yeah, now Hilux is kind of catching up a little bit, but at the same time, we're expecting sometime later next year probably to see the new Ranger um, yeah. and that'll just take it to a whole new level, potentially catapults ranger to the top of the sales charts in australia mm. who knows time will tell but it's going to be a big generational leap that's for sure one of the um things we've been theorizing about um in the news section is the potential for a three and a half liter v6 diesel um oh, oh no that's that's uh toyota sorry very uh, sorry about that um no check that um it's but a three Ford... liter power stroke v6 yep. diesel that's in the f-150 in the states yeah. notably not a volkswagen sourced unit given the two will share development. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up there, Mel, because Volkswagen currently have a thumping three-litre mm. uh, turbo diesel V6 in the Amarok, which logically, when the alliance between Ford and Volkswagen was announced to round pickup, you know, you immediately assume, okay, next Ranger Raptor or maybe some other Ranger variants will score that engine, but it seems like the F-150 is actually going to donate its own three-litre with about 190 kilowatts and about 600 newton metres. So it'll definitely be a big step up. Which is more than the Volkswagen one currently produces in Australia. You betcha. Yeah, that's right. Um, Volkswagen, though, on Overboost does produce up to 200 kilowatts of power. So it's got on the power front, but definitely in terms of torque, the Ford engine is ahead. I can imagine there's a big difference in the component price, though, between the, the Ford and the Volkswagen. I can't imagine Ford being too happy with Volkswagen component pricing. Sure. 
Sure. Uh, absolutely. But I guess the thing that maybe helps the Volkswagen engine is it's used in various other applications across VW Group, um, but mm. still it wouldn't have the uh, scale that the, the the Ford engine would with F-150 being the car it's currently in because F-150, <laughs> as we know, is the yeah. best selling car in the States and by a lot of cars. Yeah. And they sell a lot of cars. Um, yeah. Can I just go back to the, the commented question about whether the the Hilux engine outputs is a result of tune oh, or yeah. mechanicals. So they haven't, yeah. as, as we discussed, they haven't told us about any mechanical changes, but knowing Toyota, I would be very surprised if this is just about a tune. You yeah. know, Toyota is very conservative with their mechanicals and that's why they, you know, tend to last a long time. Yeah. Um, conservative and, thorough. Exactly. And, you know, we've seen the previous outputs since, was it 2016 when the, the current yeah. generation arrived? 2015, I want to say. 2015, right? Eh? Yeah. So I'd be very surprised if it's a result of someone just jumping in and going, oh, no, we can tune it. I, I, you know, there's probably something with the fueling or the turbo now that we're yeah. five years on uh, no, that's helped that, that'll, take that that'll step. That'll be um, Honest Barry's motor down down around the corner. Yeah, mate, we can we can tune it. Yeah, no, it's fine. Right, eh? which is, well, of course, is Honest, Honest Jim's greatest rival, isn't it, James? Uh, uh, it's... It's funny you say that, though, because around the um, the rumours leading up to the Hilux's official reveal, um, there were lots of commentary online about, you know, if they can really produce 150 kilowatts and, and 500 new meters out of this engine, why didn't they do it five years ago when the Hilux originally came out? If it's yeah. just a software tune, why didn't they do it five years ago? They could have been com more competitive from the get-go against Ranger. Why did they wait so long? But like you said, Mel, I think it's because there's more to it than just a software chip. Yeah, and it's highly unlikely that Toyota's internal, you know, thresholds for longevity have, you know, been scaled back to enable a tune to give you more power. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, I had something else. What was it? Oh, yeah. Justin, have they told us about the where the power and torque are being developed, like in the rev range? No, they, they haven't done specifics in terms of, um, you know, outputs and when they've been delivered or a, or a map or anything like that. So, okay. again, it's something we're going to have to wait, I assume, until August to find out. But, um, mm. yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly when you're going to get access to that 500 new meters in particular. Mm. Mm. It'd, be, um, I, I'd, it'd be interesting. I'd put the call out to listeners and, and viewers if you're in the market for a ute. It's near the end of financial year in Australia, which is typically a big buying uh, time uh, for people in business. Are you going to maybe postpone it for a little while and think about a, a new Hilux, or are you going to swoop up on a swoop down on a deal um, on the current car? It'd be great to hear what people are uh, thinking. So the thing to keep in mind is is with end of financial year at the moment and the pandemic, and then that's all that's going on. The Australian government's uh, got the instant asset tax write off. Uh, for up to $150,000, which obviously a lot of businesses are using to buy uh, vehicles at the moment. But the uh, Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries that represents all the OEMs in Australia is actually pushing to have that uh, instant asset tax write-off extended beyond um, June 30. So potentially, um, to obviously stimulate the economy and all that kind of stuff. But um, I guess the idea is potentially if that does happen, um, people might be able to get the new Hilux and take advantage of that. Um, so it might be possible to wait it out and um, and still get the new car. Yeah, but well, nonetheless, yeah. they're going to sell a lot of Ram 1500s, <laughs> 1500s during that time, aren't they? Point, I, yeah. I, think, um, I think we should move on. That was a really good discussion around, around Hilux. Thank you, guys. We're going to move to our garage. But before we do, Mel, I think I want to investigate your garage. Can you share 
with our viewers more particularly. It's a part of your fleet. What is sitting behind you there? Uh, that's my EH wagon behind me, which... So for people in other countries, EH being a Holden. Holden, yep. What, I want to say 1964. Yep, so they were launched in 63. Mine's a 64. I think uh, built March 64. Yep. And it's, it's a 179 manual, which uh, wasn't oh. available initially because it was too powerful for the general purpose. <laughs> yes. With uh, <laughs> all of about 80, 86 kilowatts, I think. But, but well, it's the tyres that... Uh, if, sort of if you've got some picks, if you've got some good picks, Mal, I know you've got one in our nation's capital, which is uh, pretty special. We might put that up for people on YouTube to uh, to have a look at. Yeah, right. All right. Now, so, but move have we heard about what's behind you, James? Sorry. Oh yeah, no, we've talked about that before. Oh, that's okay. Old, right. Okay. That's old news. And um, what about J Justin's white wall? No, I've actually got a, uh, a 2009 Panasonic uh, Pans what am I trying to say? Pan Panasonic TV down there. So ah. it's, it's it's not quite a car, but it is a relic. How many inches, Justin? Oh, that's 55. Oh, well. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Not that we're we measuring. will move to the Cars Guide garage and we'll kick it off with you, Justin. You have waved farewell, whether it be mm -hmm. fond or otherwise, to a car you've had for a little while. Fill us in on that. Yeah, so for the last six months, myself and uh, news editor Tung Nguyen have shared a Nissan Leaf, uh, which has been quite an interesting six months. So... For those of you that don't know, the LEAF is a battery electric vehicle, so there's no petrol engine, no diesel or anything like that. So it is a bit of an insight into, I guess, what the future is going to be like. Um, so, yeah, it was a great little uh, six months to kind of see whether or not we can learn to live with an electric car. And uh, I guess the answer is yes, certainly from Tom's perspective, um, his current living arrangements, he has a garage, so he can drive the car in and connect it up and charge it overnight if need be. Um, so that's a great option for him. But alternatively for me, I live in an apartment building where there's no accessible power uh, in my car park, so I can't plug in and charge it overnight. So you've got to start looking at some, some other options. So I guess the six months was kind of eye-opening, not so much about the LEAF itself, but more so about owning an electric car and what that's actually like. So <laughs> it certainly led to some interesting times into, in terms of uh, where I'm going to charge it and when. So I guess for someone in my situation, you really do have to kind of change the way you uh, approach owning a vehicle um, in order to, to have it. It's not uh, necessarily the type of thing where it's the end of the world, so to say, but definitely if you had access to power in a garage like Tung does, it's much easier to transition. Do you, you find yourself, Justin, going off and locating the nearest fast charger and doing it that way, I suppose? You just had to, to work mm. out where the network was. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So ironically for me, about 400 metres down the road is a university that has a fast charger. So um, almost by dumb luck, I happened to be quite close to one. So I could drive the car down to that, plug it in. It would take, for the Leafs, 40 kilowatt hour battery about just over an hour or so to go from zero to 100, uh, maybe about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, and then uh, during that time, I could either walk back home because, again, it wasn't that far and, and do whatever and come back or there was a park in between, so I might spend some time there. So, again, there were probably things that I wouldn't be normally doing in terms of just killing time, but, yes. you know, it was the only kind of option I had. Um, now, obviously, as well... To, did it force you to stop and smell the roses, Justin? Quite literally. Um, I don't know how many roses were in that park, but I did smell something. 
Or were you just flowers? Lurking in the shadows. Crafty uh, you know, I'm always in the bushes, so we'll see. But, uh, yeah, no, so it was an interesting time. The Leaf itself, um, as far as EVs go, is one of the most affordable uh, EVs in Australia. It's 49990 which makes it the third most affordable um, electric car you can get. So that was interesting as well to kind of see what you get for 50 grand. It is a small hatch, and in many ways, just comparing it to other small hatches, like a Mazda 3, for example, it's definitely not as, as premium in size. So you spend a lot more to obviously go electric, but it doesn't necessarily feel as special as it should considering the premium you do mm. have to pay. Um, so that's one of my... Older, it's also an older design too. It was out in Japan for at least two years before we got it, wasn't it? It is. And the other thing as well about the, the Leaf, so it's in its second generation now, so its uh, first generation has come and gone, but it's actually the same platform. Um, it's a larger battery pack and um, a brand new body and interior and all that, but all the bits underneath are actually the same as before. So it's quite an old car um, when you really pick it apart. Um, and, you know, the battery is still air-cooled. So in terms of thermal management, most of, if not all of its rivals off the top of my head, uh, use liquid cooling so it's not the most um, efficient in that regard um, so justin, that's something to keep in mind too justin when you say uh, pick it apart so you did disassemble the vehicle and investigate right. it thoroughly and it's yep. you got it back together before you returned it jo yeah. johnny five style <laughs> yeah I approached it with like a Lego mentality, right? Someone had assembled a beautiful car, yeah. I disassembled it and then put it back together. And, and being an EV, yeah, exactly. Being an EV, EV uh, drivetrains only have, I think it's like 14 components versus a internal combustion engine's like two and a half thousand. So, you know, it wasn't actually that challenging. It was it's kind of like, a, I'd say it was probably six plus as far as Lego goes. All right, so in, in, in saying goodbye to it, it sounds like it was a broader learning experience as much as it was, um, you know, getting to grips with that particular car, yeah? Yeah, the things I liked about it, I would like about any electric car. I, I, I liked it because it was an electric car. I didn't necessarily like it because it was a Leaf, if that makes sense. So um, things like instant talk um, off the line, it's a bit of a cliche as far as automotive journalism goes, but it's definitely something particularly in a city environment you notice um so that i really enjoyed and it's got quite a comfortable ride too um and a, a great feature called e-pedal actually where as soon as you lift off the accelerator it's got very harsh regenerative braking to charge the battery on the go so much so that you can stop the car if you time it well enough um, to a standstill and not use the brake pedal at all so i actually got quite used to never using the brake pedal and kind of challenging myself to almost relearn how to drive um, and then picking the right moment to come off the accelerator and all that. So it was it was quite a fun experience, truth be told. Great. So if you hate paying for brake pads to be replaced, it's a really good option. 100%. I uh, barely took a mill off those. So they, they were looking pretty good when they went back after six months. The flip side of that is the brake rotors and pads would probably pretty be pretty small anyway because you're doing so much regenerative braking. They don't have to yeah. be beefy brakes in the thing. That's yeah, right. Even with e-pedal as well. Mm, that's true. But even with e-pedal turned off, there is still some degree of regenerative braking. Otherwise, obviously, you're not charging the battery while you're driving. Um, so that is noticeable. But definitely with e-pedal on it, it's quite aggressive. I have one final question. Um, so you took it down to the park to charge it. Was Tung, yeah. with his ability to charge it in the garage, he was just charging through the standard wall? That's um, right. So... Okay, so he had the convenience of being local, but it took longer to charge, whereas you had to walk down the street to charge it yeah. more quickly. Just an example of the many, the array of options you have to live with an electric yeah. car. 
Uh, I guess the other thing just quickly as well is um, obviously there's an option to charge it at work if, if possible. So we both work in the, um, the Melbourne CBD. So being the CBD in Melbourne, you would assume that there are lots of electric car chargers around and the answer is not really actually even in 2020 um it's it's not as prolific as either of us thought it was going to be and if there are electric uh car chargers they're either in uh, private car parks you can't access them or they're potentially part of tesla's supercharger network which is notoriously hardware and software locked in many instances we did actually find one single Tesla charger in the entire CBD that wasn't hardware or software locked. So we could charge the Leaf using that, um, which is good. And that's fine because when the Model 3 Tesla's latest uh, car to be released in Australia came out, they started making that network more accessible. But there are a lot of older members of that network that, again, like I said, are either software locked or hardware locked. So by dumb luck, we managed to find one that actually worked. Quick I certainly, I got caught. Oh, sorry. I, uh, I certainly got caught trying to charge a Jaguar I-Pace uh, with a Tesla charger. Even that plugged in, wouldn't talk to it. Yes, uh, that's, that's the right. One. So, yeah. right. Now, Mel, your experience um, has been another long-term vehicle, but it's a totally different kind. Fill us in yes. on that one. Yes. So uh, I, ha- I swapped the Acadia LTZ uh, long-termer in February, shortly after Holden announced they are exiting the market, for obvious reasons, <laughs> for... Yes. Uh, the serendipitously announced uh, Mazda CX-8 Sport Petrol. So a new entry version, uh, which we've probably talked about in the podcast before, but it's it's basically giving the CX-8, the CX-5's 2.5-litre non-turbo engine uh, in the base variant and sneaking under $40,000 list price. So kind of what that car was lacking from launch um, given you know the car, the CX-8 is primarily developed to be the premium offering in the Mazda lineup in Japan, where they don't get the CX-9. So it's a bit of an ask for us to to get a, a pared down version for Australia. But thankfully, they managed to to bring it here, and I've got it in my garage. Um, <laughs> not literally in my garage; it's just on the other side of that door at the moment. But uh, yeah. we'll have photos on the screen. Okay. Uh, so what have I got to say about that? Uh, under forty thousand dollars. And, you know, yes, the CX-8 is a bit of a CX-5, CX-9 mashup, but if you think about it, so is every other, you know, uh, mainstream sort of semi-large, semi-mid-size SUV. You know, Tiguan Allspace, for example, is just an elongated Tiguan. Um, uh, but so, yeah, it's it's been quite interesting because when, when I... When we thought, mm, geez, they need to put a petrol engine in this car, I, I theorised that the most likely option was going to be the 2.5-litre turbo from the CX-9. But yeah. no, yeah. we've got the non-turbo. So it's being asked to pull a fair bit more weight. Um, in CX-8 form, it doesn't have the all-wheel drive that you would get in a CX-5 with that engine. So it's not that much. Um, but uh, so, you know, it does dull down the performance a bit and boost the uh the consumption a bit but what, what i'm finding so far is that the consumption is neatly between the right. cx5 and the cx9 that i've both lived with in the past um yeah. so it's a bit of a goldilocks really um but the the biggest test for me is still to come so i've got two child seats in the back uh the the measurement between the doors is 100 millimeters narrower than a cx9 which is fine for two seats but uh, I'll need to be fitting a third seat in the coming weeks. Yes. Uh, 
and I have the seat right there. And according to my measurements, it'll fit. But uh, we'll so see how so we go. So now to clarify, you're not just a child seat uh, enthusiast. Collector. You do no. actually put small people in these seats from time yes. to time. Yes, yes. And I'm about to acquire a third small person for the purposes of testing. So, Very good. Uh, just, just to be clear, that's going to be your own child and not someone else's, yeah? It will be, <laughs> yes, it will be a wholly owned, well, actually partially owned by myself. Uh, I'll own 50% of that child, yes. Very good. good. Very good. Very good. All right, now, look, I'll just chip in quickly. Um, I'm slumming it for the next um, three months or so in a BMW M850i Grand Coupe. Now, to, to kick it off, it's just under 300 grand before you put it on the road. Um, so by the time you do put it on the road, that's kind of the ballpark we're in. But it's the Evergreen 4.4 litre twin turbo V8, um, about 290 kilowatts, 750 newton metres, eight speed auto, all wheel drive. Um, it's about two tonnes, 5.1 metres long, and goes zero to 100 kmh in 3.9 seconds. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. It's in... The, the one that I've got is a frozen um, metallic grey, so it's that matte uh, finish on the car, which just enhances it. Even in quite bright sunlight, it just has an even play of light across the car. You can see all the details. The acceleration is one thing. It's, uh, it's really quite something. But the interior, it's like a well-tailored suit. It's just impeccable. Everything in there is put together so beautifully. And I've hooked up to the BMW Connected Drive app, so you can start to do things like ventilating the car before you get to it, locating where the car is. And I'm playing with that as part of the long-term experience, which will be a lot of fun. But it has all the fruit, laser headlights. Talk about LED headlights. This thing's got laser headlights. Sits on big 20-inch rims. So I'm only just at the start a couple of days in, but very much looking forward to, to that experience over time. It's all-wheel drive too, isn't it? The eight Yeah, it is. Yeah, so... so it's an extra. Kind of got everything that car by the same things. Can I ask what colour the interior is, Jason? It's a it's a dual tone, so it's black on the outside with white perforated on the inserts and contrast white stitching. So it looks terrific, and we'll see how practical nice. that is over time. Um, I don't have any child seat occupants, but I do have children, so we'll be able to just put them in the seat and see how that goes. They don't often react to a car very much but this one yeah they've all been saying oh, this is a bit special so it's it's very nice are any of your children as tall as you yet jc one's very close in fact our youngest daughter um is extremely tall she probably has a future in women's basketball or volleyball um so yeah no it'll be it'll be a good test i'm really looking forward to it wow. now speaking of looking forward to it everybody always looks forward to musk watch Right, so this week, big news for Elon, of course, has been that he successfully, or SpaceX rather, launched a rocket with two people on board, went up to the International Space Station, uh, docked and brought them back. So he was talking on Launch America, which was a broadcast in the US that basically went live on, on everything that was happening. And Video From Space, who's a YouTuber, replayed some of this footage and First thing I learned in watching Elon on this uh, program is he's chief engineer for SpaceX. He is he calls himself chief engineer for SpaceX, which I think is a bit like Akio Toyota calling himself a master driver. I think it's a, an honorific title. 
I hope it isn't him actually in there with the spanners and, and um, you know, getting the thing going. Now, he said on this broadcast, he said it should get people right in the heart. And he actually, you know, punched himself on the chest. He said the United States is the distillation of the spirit of exploration. And he said, I'm really quite overcome with emotion and it's kind of hard to talk. But he did continue to talk with all the joy of a robot. He looked like a cyborg on this program. Um, but hats off and well done to NASA and SpaceX, I suppose. That's, that's happened. And um, the next thing up was that he said on Tuesday of this week, June the 2nd, quote, off Twitter for a while. Then you get to Thursday, June 4th, and he was retweeting the SpaceX liftoff of another bloody rocket that's going to take 60 Starlink satellites and put them up into orbit. This time they've got sunshades on them so they don't wreck astronomy. But people were confused. He said, you know, Wednesday he, he was, had something else to do, so he wasn't on Twitter. And I was saying, is he avoiding the riots that unfortunately are across the US at the moment? Was it some kind of political cowardice because he'd said some controversial things in recent time? Others thought he was taking a whirlwind break after this whole launch thing, and others still thought he was going to Mars, you know, that he was just off Twitter so that he could actually head to Mars, and they wanted to go with him. Oh. But a person called Lil Board reinterpreted the famous Joe Rogan Experience interview with Elon um, as a cyborg, and people on YouTube will see that footage. I thought it was pretty entertaining, and that really he might be going into shutdown, and he might just to need to recharge his Tesla batteries on board. Um, now, the last thing is, just overnight, we're recording this on Friday, Elon has tweeted that he thinks it's time to break up Amazon. And it turns out the reason for this, um, he says, hold on, he's tweeted, this is insane at Jeff Bezos, um, tagging the Amazon uh, CEO. Um, it's time to break up Amazon. Monopolies are wrong. And it was um, CNBC reporting this. It was directed at the former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson and Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos after Berenson published a screenshot showing that his upcoming book about COVID-19 doesn't meet Amazon guidelines for sale. So Berenson's been a critic of the US coronavirus lockdown, suggesting the risks of serious illness or death are much lower than reported, especially for younger people. That, of course, plays into Elon's take on the whole thing as well. But Amazon said later the book was removed in error being reinstated and that it's contacted Berenson to sort it all out. So uh, it was all a bit of a st storm in a teapot, uh, tea, uh, teacup rather. But um, Elon's first response was to just break up Amazon. Um, which brings us to the share price, $864.38. And it was $820 last week. So the SpaceX launch, in fact, itself saw the Tesla share price spike 8%. Just on the back of uh, SpaceX having success, people started to buy Tesla. But the, uh, the Motley Fool thinks, um, is Tesla a stock to buy right now? Uh, because they're saying the business has turned out to be scalable. There's demand for the Tesla product. You've got the Model Y. You've got the China factory coming online. Growth in capacity. But they do say, with only a billion dollars in free cash flow, their market capitalization of $165 billion could still be a bubble. And they'd say, wait till it comes under $800 before buying. And I'm thinking we should buy a Tesla share so that we can get some skin in the game. I'm putting it out there. We're all going to tip in. We're going to buy a Tesla share. And, and 
see how this roller coaster ride goes for us. I think it'll is just this, be beer money. Is this, yes, are you, is this you crowdfunding, James? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a closed circuit crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Right. So, so we're going to go through Patreon or GoFundMe? No, it'll just be the editorial team each oh. chuck in, you know, 80 bucks or something like that. Sorry, listeners, you're not invited to make money with us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we have reached the finish line, and I want to say thank you, Justin, and thank you, Mel. You're welcome, James. Thanks to our senior production optimizer, corporate magician, and pet food taster, Mr. Pritchard, for his sheer brilliance on the dials and sliders. Today, he's in his Have You Tried Turning It Off and On Again t-shirt, duck-themed shorts with butt quack on the rear of them, and zombie slippers. It's a frightening look. I've but got he's to warm. He is warm. Please yeah. pass on the word about the podcast and let us know your thoughts by searching for Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag CG Podcast or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. If you're an iTunes listener, please rate and review us. And remember, you can watch us on YouTube. But before we go, mate of mine had fitted suitcases made for his classic Bentley. But because of the coronavirus, he had to tell the fancy luggage it wouldn't be needed for a while. Which isn't great, because dealing with emotional baggage can be tough. <laughs> I'm laughing behind my beard. <laughs> I couldn't hear it with all that hair.